I'm so honored that you're here today. Thank you. It's really overwhelming. Uh, I have a lot of really important information to share today. And I was so um, excited when Louis Palau said at the very end, if you were in the last session, that our body is our temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so today I'm going to um, present a lot of current research that's been done in the last year. Um, so I'm very excited about it. It's going to be a little bit different than last year. There's a lot of complicated medical terms that I'm going to talk about, so please bear with me. Um, and if you have any questions throughout the presentation, I welcome uh, your comments, your questions throughout. And I truly believe you came here for a reason, and I'm hoping that I can answer all those questions and concerns so that you leave with what you need. And today we're going to get started um, in introducing the concepts, and tomorrow will be the follow-up. So um, it's not going to be the same today and tomorrow as Dave Burns said. So how do we increase our longevity and our health? We want to travel. We want to be mobile. Uh, we want to enjoy our life, right? How do we dream great dreams and, and pray great prayers, as he just said in the last session? And how do we dance throughout our lives so we're not limping? This is my wonderful husband and my Weimariner, and they did that for a slide. But how do we enjoy our lives so that we truly get what we want? And yesterday, when you were all arriving after I had done a little work, um, Jeffrey and I walked around Mount Hermon, and we found this beautiful bridge, and we thought, oh, we'd love to walk across that bridge. And guess what? There was this blockade where we couldn't get through. And I thought, what a wonderful metaphor that is for us. We want to be walking and moving and enjoying our lives. And our, if we have a health concern that gets in the way, it makes it so that it, it's, it's hard to do the, the things we want to do to enjoy our life. And so how do we change that? And the next two days is how do we address the driver of what is getting in the way of true health and enjoyment? So I'm wondering before I get started, like I said, I have a lot of information, a lot to talk about, but there was a reason that you came today. And part of my um, teaching style is I like to know what that is. So if you can raise your hand, and I'm going to write on one of these boards maybe a few things that people want to know about or why they came, and then I will weave those in with what I talk about today um, or tomorrow. So the floor is yours, and if you can just yell out maybe some things you'd like me to address over the next two days. Okay. And that is pretty much my whole two days. So thank you for leading off in that. And the answer is yes, but I'm going to explain how that happens. 
Okay, high blood pressure. Belly fat. High glucose. Hmm? COPD. That's a little bit off my topic, but it is lower in, less inflammation can help that as well. Cancer will be included in, um, in my talk, but I'll remember to talk about oral. Cholesterol and triglycerides, one of my favorites. Talk to me about the osteoarthritis on the side, but asthma is, can be caused from inflammation. So we'll address that. Poor circulation. Poor circulation, okay. Circulation and movement. There was somebody over here. Glycemic index, we will talk a little bit about that. Leaky gut. Your gut is half the size of a football field if you were to roll it out. So a lot can happen in the gut. They're calling it the second brain. So it's, it's one of the drivers of um, disease. Can't really address orthopedic issues. Sorry. Yeah, but I can talk to you about that later. Bad diets. Okay, okay. Restless leg syndrome is kind of an entity into itself, so it's going to be hard to address that. But you can talk to me on the side. Food allergies. Talk to me afterward, because that's like a whole separate thing. Okay. So I will say that I'm addressing the driver of all diseases, but a lot of these very specific things are under those categories, but I can't talk in detail about those because we just don't have the time. Alzheimer's, definitely I will be talking about that. About pre and probiotics, okay. Sleep. I'll talk about heart disease. You know, when I was a little girl, my parents are in this room, but they're going to probably be mad at me for saying this, but my father worked at night, and my mother would go around the house all day long and say, shh, your father's sleeping. Shh, your father's sleeping. So I developed this really low voice, and when people talk loud, it annoys me. So as a speaker, I have to remind myself, uh, your father isn't sleeping anymore. Okay. Huh? Bone health. Maybe I'll talk. So a couple of people have asked me that a little bit tomorrow. There's one more, and then I got to get started. Also orthopedic. Okay. Also kind of, yeah. And, and I am sorry, I can't address everything in two hours, but I will try my best. How's that? I will do the best I can. If 
I am too low, my voice, do this. I'm fine with that, okay? So what is the best diet for health? Um, where's the one where you're healthy, you're hydrated, you're living your best life, and it's tailored for you? These are two very special people in my life that I met the first time I went to um, All Comers. You may not recognize them by their backside, but um, they're here. They're here, in, they're here in the room, okay? So why bother? Why bother about changing the balance of your diet? Why not eat all those donuts out there or the cookies at night or the cake at dinner, right? Why does it even matter? Aren't genetics set at birth? Well, guess what? Dr. David Sinclair says, our health destiny is not locked in our genes. It's only 20%, right? You get to control 80%. How's that for some good news, right? The rest is up to us. I don't genetically look like my family, you know, that has weight issues, diabetes, all that, but I have to... Um, I have to live what I preach, right? I have to live what I do. And so I'm just encouraging you to think about, although you may be given a certain set of genes, that doesn't have to define you. You can actually change that. Our health span and longevity is within our hands. We get to control how much we move, how often do we eat, what we eat. That determines our health span and our lifespan. Even in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, you can make changes. There's an exercise physiologist, uh, Bill Evans, and he's, uh, he works out of um, Harvard Medical School, and he actually goes into nursing homes, and people that are um, not able to walk, he puts them on a weight program, an exercise program, and he's created more mobility and strength in people who were very disabled, right? So, you can change things. So where do we begin? How do we address the causes of aging? Not just the symptoms. You go to your doctor, you're gonna get a pill, right? And so how do we treat the driver? How do we change the story? And I thought this was a great quote that I heard recently. People do not decide their futures, they decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. Right? So how do we change our habits so that we are increasing our health span and our lifespan? And where do we start? Well, we start with measuring. How do we measure where we're at so we actually know where we want to go? So let's take a survey. Do you have high cholesterol triglycerides? Have you had weight challenges now or your whole life? Are you diabetic or pre-diabetic? Have you had gout? Have you ever had fatty liver? Have you had irritable bowel syndrome? Have you had cancer? Do you have cognitive challenges? Do you have oral issues or periodontal disease? Do you have a family history of any of these? Do you store weight in your belly? Do you have sugar cravings? Do you have afternoon slumps or energy challenges? Are you hungry all the time? Do your meals satisfy your hunger? Are you hungry at night? Do you feel rested when you wake up? Do you sleep enough? Do you snore and have sleep apnea? Do you feel bloated? 
Do you have any unexplained fluid retention? Do you feel inflamed all the time? If you answered yes to any of these, and the more you answered yes to, the more likely you have something called insulin resistance. And you may have heard me talk about that last year. Well, I'm going to delve into a lot more detail this year. What is insulin resistance? Isn't it just to do with diabetes? Well, yes and no. It's the driver of almost all disease. I can say with confidence that probably 85 to 90% of disease, the foundation is insulin resistance. So how do we know what insulin resistance is and then how do we treat it? Most people with increased age have insulin resistance. You may be born with insulin resistance, but even if you're not born with it, as you age, you develop it which affects your metabolism and leads to inflammation, right? So what causes inflammation? Well, it's all about carbohydrates, believe it or not. So there's three macronutrients. There's carbohydrates, protein, and fat. And carbohydrates are the driver, right? As you age, your body changes the way you metabolize carbohydrate. So here's the normal metabolism. You ingest carbohydrates, you have an organ called the pancreas, which releases insulin, your blood sugar goes up, your body releases insulin, and then with a normal metabolism, your blood sugar goes down, um, you feel full, you're not attached to food, and you move on to the next meal. Okay? But with carbohydrate intolerance, what happens is when you eat a high-carb meal, your blood sugar goes up, the body over-secretes insulin, which can hang out in your system for a long time, which keeps you attached to food, makes you want carbs, makes your blood sugar go up and down, which um, causes energy challenges, and makes your organs uh, more likely to not work properly. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. which leads to weight gain, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, high glucose, energy challenges, and lots of issues. This is Perry when he was a baby, right? You know, so you feel like you want to take a nap all the time because your body isn't efficient at using the food that you're taking in. So how do we control inflammation? Well, we control insulin resistance. And you don't want to be looking in the back mirror thinking, what could I have done? So today is about how do you understand, have knowledge, and make the changes you need to make to increase your health span and your lifespan. And it's all about insulin. And you may be ask, saying, well, doesn't that just have something to do with diabetes? Well, yes and no. Insulin resistance, or what we're calling now hyperinsulinemia, is the driver. It's the driver. So as you age, your pancreas over-secretes insulin in response to the amount of carbohydrate you eat. So if you're eating that big plate of pasta, maybe you handled it when you were 20 and 30, but when you're 45 and 50, the pancreas goes, oh, that's a lot of... That's a lot of carbohydrate. 
and it over-secretes insulin, which stays in your system for a long time, which creates that inflammation. And the extra glucose that your body didn't utilize, the liver says, oh, I'll take that. The liver takes the glucose and makes cholesterol, triglycerides, more fat, and leads to fatty liver. In fact, a very interesting statistic is up to like 20 years ago, there was not a diagnosis known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now it's a huge diagnosis in children, ages 9 to 13. And they say that in the next 10 years, that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease will lead to the most cirrhosis we've ever seen and need for liver transplant. And for years, I used to think, well, it's just about all the high fructose corn syrup in our diet. Well, interesting enough, and I'll talk about this probably later today or tomorrow, it can be also due to excess fruit intake and fruit juice intake. So you might want to rethink that orange juice you're drinking in the morning. So. What is insulin sensitivity versus resistance, okay? And this is interesting. I've learned this, I've been studying insulin resistance for 25 years, but I just learned some very interesting statistics that are on this slide. So there's this thousand-fold spectrum of insulin resistance. People that are insulin sensitive, that's when their metabolisms work exactly the way they're supposed to. You know the skinny little people we don't like, right? Those people, right? And then there's this other side of the spectrum for people who are very, very insulin resistant where their pancreas is very overactive. Well, I used to tell people when you have the most insulin resistance, when you eat a piece of bread, your pancreas secretes up to nine times the amount of insulin that the insulin-sensitive person's pancreas secretes. Well, I just went to a conference two months ago, and they said it's far worse, that someone who's the most insulin-resistant can secrete up to 900 times the amount of insulin. So you just didn't eat that piece of bread. You ate 10 pieces of bread or 20 pieces of bread or people that are the most insulin-resistant, 900 pieces of bread. And that's why sometimes you think, I'm not eating that much. I'm not eating any more than anyone else. And you probably aren't. You're probably eating less than other people, but your pancreas is over-secreting insulin, which makes your body very efficient at storing fat. Right? So how do we treat that? Yes, it's not fair, but how do we manage it? Right? How do we manage it so that we don't become that, right? We just don't throw in the towel and say, well, you know, that's my genetics. I'm just going to eat what I want. And it's all about your value. How do you pull for the value of health and feeling comfortable in your body, not becoming diabetic, not becoming a heart attack statistic? Right? How do you keep pulling for your value because ambivalence is normal. You know, wanting and not wanting incompatible things at the same time. And what happens is we keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and we end up procrastinating and then we're thought of as being resistance, but it's just procrastination. Right? 
But how do we keep pulling for the value, which is abstract? On the one hand, I want to eat the cookies, but on the other hand, I don't want to become diabetic, right? And today is about giving you knowledge, but also the tools of how you execute those changes. And one key thing is hyperinsulinemia is very linked to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And I'll tell you, there's this, I talked about this last year, there's a book that came out called The End of Alzheimer's. And you can actually check if you have what's called the APOE4 gene. Okay? And I read this book last year and I felt vindicated <laughs> because I think that I'm so strict. And when I read this book, I thought, oh, I'm not very strict compared to him. He said, sugar and carbs are evil for the brain. Right? And so the way to avoid Alzheimer's, which you can control, even if you have the Alzheimer's gene, is to control insulin resistance. That is the key. They call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. That's what they're calling it now. Right? So you can see, if you're treating hyperinsulinemia, you can treat all these things at the same time. So if your pancreas is over-secreting insulin, guess what else? The insulin is hanging out for a long time. It's not clearing, which leads to a lower metabolism, more cravings, increased fatigue, um, where you just want to, like, lay on the floor and take a nap, right? And you think, why am I so tired, right? Because your, food, your body is not efficient at using the food that you're taking in because your pancreas is over-secreting insulin all the time. So what do you do? What do you measure? The holy grail would be if you were able to measure insulin, but right now that is not uh, practical, and it's really not, um, you're not able to do that unless you went in for a blood draw, you know, every day, and, and we're not going to do that, right? So... This is a list, and I'm going to talk about these in detail tomorrow, so you don't have to know exactly what they are. But um, these are things that you can ask to have measured by your physician that will actually give insight into your level of insulin resistance. Because many times we're, we're going to the doctor, we're getting cholesterol, triglycerides, glucose, liver function tests, and what the research is now showing is those things are surface-level blood work. They're not looking at what's actually going on in your pancreas and your liver to make these numbers what they are. And so if you're just measuring those surface numbers and your doctor says, oh, your cholesterol's great, your blood sugar's fine, guess what? It may not be. And you just don't know it. So part of being a proactive person with your health is asking for these. And even my patients who come to me who have HMOs or Medicare or Kaiser, they've gone back to their doctor and they may not do all of these, but even a few of them can be very helpful. And we don't want to wait because the medical model is now you have heart disease, now you have diabetes where the preventative models, how do you get ahead of the curve so you never have to hear those dreaded words? Because 40% of the American 
population has prediabetes and is obese, 40%. And they say by the year 2050, it'll be over 50%. Right? And what we're saying now is it's not what you eat. It's your, you are what your body stores from what you eat. Okay? It's a different way of thinking, and I'm going to explain what the current research is showing with respect to that. And it's called feeding versus fasting. And you've probably heard of intermittent fasting. It's been, you know, it's probably been around uh, five to ten years. People have been talking about it. But I'm, this isn't really intermittent fasting. This is about how often you eat and in what time frame you eat that helps control that overactive pancreas. So insulin, that's the hormone your pancreas is secreting. It's an energy storage hormone. So if you have a lot of insulin floating around in your system, you're going to store fat very efficiently. Okay? Years ago, they had... Uh, a researcher in the 30s, he called it the thrifty gene, okay? And it's a real thing that certain people have the thrifty gene, so when they eat, their body is very efficient at holding on to whatever they eat. And it worked well in times of famine, but, you know, we're not in a famine, so it doesn't really work that well for us. Um, there's some people that actually studied survivals of the Holocaust, and they found that the ones that actually survived were the ones that had the thrifty gene, right? And what's interesting is 95, I'm in Los Angeles, I would say 95% of my clients are Jewish. That tells you anything. You know, they have the thrifty gene. That's where it developed from. So with feeding, we store fat, and with fasting, we burn fat, okay? I'm going to explain that in a lot of detail, so uh, don't get scared that you just have to fast all the time. Okay. So this served us well when we were in line with our circadian rhythms, right? For years and years, people ate when the sun came up and they stopped eating when the sun came down. You know, they were in line with their rhythms, but we're not like that anymore, right? We're on all the time. We work longer, we're on our electronic devices, myself included, uh, we sleep less, and we live in abundance, and we eat from early morning to late at night. The average person eats 15 to 16 hours a day. Okay? We were not designed to eat like that. So the longer and more often we eat throughout the day, remember, the pancreas, it's working, it's secreting insulin. As you age, that insulin is hanging out longer, right? Hence, the more fat we produce. The more we fast, the less we expose our body to insulin. So insulin is the nemesis of the metabolism and fasting is the antidote. So how do you solve that? How do you change that? How do you turn that around so that you decrease the driver? You expose your body to less insulin. 
It's all about insulin. That's what all the research this year has pointed to. And we call it time-restricted eating. So you only eat as people were designed to eat two or three times a day. This is very exciting. The Sachin Institute, which is the big research um, institute that looks at longevity. And for years, they've been talking about how people should be eating in a 12-hour window. So if you eat breakfast at 8 o'clock, then you finish by 8 p.m. But December 5th, they came out with their brand new study that showed it's actually a 10-hour window. And what they found is if you eat in this 10-hour window, meaning you start breakfast at 8, you're done with your last bite of food by 6, or if you start at 9, you're done with your last bite of food by 7, that there are significant decreases in waist circumference, belly fat, body fat percentage, lowered blood pressure, A1C, which is blood, your three-month average blood sugar, right? Significant decreases, decreases in total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and quite a few patients in their study actually normalized glucose that were diabetic. So it's a big deal. And they, they said in their study that they felt like this was the sustainable amount of time. And you've probably heard, you know, eat in a six-hour window or eat in an eight-hour window or, you know, there's a 5-2 plan. There's all these made-up plans. But what I liked about the research was I felt like if you could eat in a 10-hour window most days of the week, that could change your life. That could increase, that could lower your inflammation. Um, it could increase length of years. I'm going to actually give a statistic on that later. So it's good news, right? It means, though, that you can't eat everything you want all the time, right? And so, you know, that late night cereal snack or um, whatever it is, is it worth it? Only you can answer that, right? However, the other interesting thing, and I'll talk about this later as well, is it takes five to six hours to fully digest your meals. So if you are eating too close to bed, you are actually digesting your food within the first few hours of sleep, which makes your pancreas and your liver work very hard. It makes it hard to reset those organs, which puts stress on them. I tell my patients, no food three hours before bed. If you really want a restful sleep, if you want to reset your metabolism overnight, you want your pancreas and your liver to completely rest for the next day, no food three hours before bed and eat in a 10-hour window. If you don't hear anything else the next two days, those are two things that can really help change your health. Because if you're eating in a 10-hour window, you're giving all your organs a full rest 14 hours overnight. That could be huge. So it's beneficial for controlling insulin resistance. And I already talked about this. You start at 8, you finish by 6, and no food three hours before bed. And only eat 
every four hours at most to honor what is called your cleaning cycle. And I talked about this a little bit last year, but there's a, um, a GI expert, and he's probably the, the most uh, respected GI physician in the world at Cedars, which is um, near where I live, and uh, Dr. Mark Pimentel. And a few years ago, he kept stressing people need to have a four-hour cleaning cycle between meals. And I thought, that's such a funny term. What does he mean by that? Well, now that all this research has come out about time-restricted eating and hyperinsulinemia, it makes a lot of sense. What he means is when you eat, your blood sugar goes up, your insulin levels goes up, remember your pancreas secretes the insulin, and it usually stays elevated for four hours and then drops and your body's ready for food. If you eat, if you're a grazer, right, or um, a nibbler throughout the day, or my husband calls it piecing, you know, piecing throughout the day, if you eat it one hour or two hours or three hours, what happens is your insulin and glucose are still high, and guess what? Your pancreas says, oh, there's more food, and it secretes insulin again. So you, your body never recovers. Your insulin and glucose stay high all the time, which keeps your inflammation elevated, but also keeps you very attached to food. It's not psychological, it's very physical. When glucose and insulin levels are high, you're thinking about food all the time. You're thinking about, where's the cookies? Where's the donuts at Mount Hermon? Where's my next meal, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a, or it doesn't even matter if it's a healthy snack, if it's a string cheese or nuts, those are obviously much healthier snacks, but you're still making your insulin, your, excuse me, your pancreas secrete insulin when the cycle hasn't completed itself. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I know it's, it, these are difficult concepts, but I think they're very important to understand if you truly want to change um, your life because the old adage of, oh, just push away from the table, move more, eat less, it doesn't work because the research shows it has nothing to do with calories. It has to do with how often you eat, right? And how often you fast. Mm -hmm. So it's not about calorie restriction. In fact, I've been doing this for probably a year and a half more than I ever did. I actually eat more and weigh less than I did a year ago because I just eat two or three times a day. I don't snack. I used to stack, you know, eat six times a day. You remember how trainers used to tell you, oh, eat little, bit, little meals throughout the day, stimulate your metabolism, completely bogus, no research to back that up. In fact, it's completely opposite of what you want to do if you're insulin resistant because if you're eating six times a day, guess what? You're exposing your body to insulin six times a day. So what does fasting do? It improves your glucose. It actually increases stress resistance. So it helps you be more effective at handling stress. It suppresses inflammation. And here's the driver, lowers risk of diabetes, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. And lowers neurodegenerative brain disease. 
And when you think about it, fasting has been around for, since biblical times, for years. Right? And, I, and I started thinking about it a few days ago when I was preparing for this talk. I've been preparing for the talk long before that, but um, <laughs> I was really thinking about well, you know, Jesus had these sets of rules, or the Lord had these sets of rules in the Old Testament about how people live their lives, and fasting was part of that, right? And of course, we don't do a lot of those things um, that the Israelites had to do, but I have to wonder if there was much less disease then because fasting was more a normal part of their culture. So why don't we fast? We've lost what they're now calling metabolic flexibility, the ability to switch back and forth between using glucose and fat. So what does that mean? So when you eat, remember, your, your blood sugar goes up, your pancreas secretes insulin, right? And ideally, your body uses that food and it drops, and then you're burning fat till your next meal. So you're burning glucose, okay, when you first eat, and then your body's supposed to recover, and then you burn fat till your next meal. Well, guess what? If we're eating all the time, we're running on sugar, we're running on glucose. So we never tap into fat stores, right? And so the only way our body can tap into fat stores and we can make our metabolism work better is that four-hour cleaning cycle and not snacking so that we make our metabolism work better. We expose our body to less insulin. Because if your insulin levels are high, you're constantly in fat storing mode versus burning mode. Right? So how do you know if you're metabolically inflexible? Do you become agitated or moody if you don't eat every three, two to three hours? Do you feel weak and tired before or after eating? Do you frequently have brain fog or lower attention span? Are you falling asleep all the time? Do you feel anxious if you don't go two or three hours without food? Do you feel nervous if you don't have snacks on hand all the time? Do you have to have coffee or tea in the mid-morning or mid-afternoon to keep yourself awake? Right? If you answered yes to one or two or three or four of those questions, you probably have metabolic inflexibility. Right? Your glucose stays up, your insulin levels are high, right? and what happens is when you eat, when your glucose starts to fall down after an hour or two after eating, your brain says, oh, I gotta eat again, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, right? Because your body wants to bring your glucose level up again and you're just running on sugar, you're running on glucose all the time. And it's not just about your weight. If your insulin levels are high, you are predisposing yourself to all those disease states because your inflammation never goes down. Right? So a lot of those questions that people ask me that I said I can't quite deal with that today or tomorrow, those, they may not be the driver of those, inflammation may not be the driver, but it can significantly help 
if your insulin levels are down. Right? So that's our goal, and that's what we're going to talk about more tomorrow, is how do we help balance our meals and the timing of our meals so that we control insulin resistance and inflammation. Right? How do we live our lives so that we're not chronically metabolically inflexible and we have a continual need to eat, especially carbs and sugars? Right? Because we want to be metabolically flexible so that we're not always attached to food. Right? especially carbs and sugary foods, because that's going to result in mood challenges, energy challenges, um, just to name a few, and high insulin levels. I'm beating, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but I want you to maybe hear it a few times. High insulin levels predispose you to all diseases, including diabetes, um, high blood pressure, cholesterol, cancer, cognitive changes. Right? I can't tell you how many times I'll see someone in my office and they're referred, their blood sugar's a little high and they've had a history of cancer or they've had a history of gut issues, leaky gut. And if we treat the driver, if we treat the insulin resistance, guess what? The blood sugar gets better, the stomach gets better, the energy gets better, right? And so, um, it's a slam dunk, which is very cool, right? It's just how do you discipline yourself to live your life in that way? Mm -hmm. So where do you start? Well, I'll talk about a few things today, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty tomorrow. But if you can't fathom eating in a 10-hour window, then maybe start with a 12-hour window, you know? If you eat breakfast at 8, Stop eating by eight. You know, think about those parameters and then maybe slice off 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Do it in a, I call it an eyedropper way, you know, a, a little gradual way so that you ease into it. Decrease your intake of carbs and sugars. And I know we talk about bread being the staff of life and, um, you know, there's so much about bread. And I won't get into a huge discussion about this, but the, our food integrity now is so much different. When people were baking their bread and using few ingredients, our bodies were able to utilize those um, carbohydrates much more effectively. But because our food is so processed, and full, even bread is full of sugar and high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, the average bread label is like this, right? Um, it's not so healthy. You know, we're, we're getting a lot more carbs and sugars than we even realize. And I can't tell you how many times someone will come to me and bring the label and I'll, and I'll say, read what's on the label. There's tons of sugar. There's, and it may say, oh, zero carbohydrates, but there's a lot of fake sweeteners. And interesting, fake sweeteners in the body are not free. They mimic insulin resistance because they still evoke a high insulin glucose response. So you think you're getting a get your you think you have a get out of jail free card, and you do not. Okay? Big study, and I talked about this a little last year. 
that these researchers who studied the gut microbiome measured glucose insulin levels and all the different sweeteners in different amounts and what the effect were on um, how high the glucose and the insulin levels went after doing water, sugar, water, and all the sweeteners. And they found that the sweeteners increase insulin and glucose 30 to 35% higher than even water or sugar water. Right? And what's interesting is a lot of my clients, who I think used to think I was crazy, uh, I tell them this, and like, oh, yeah, Susan, okay. And, you know, last year I talked about this sensor that came out last year called the Freestyle Libra that you can wear on the back of your arm. I still wear it. Um, and you can track your glucose uh, throughout the day with your iPhone, right, which is cool. And a lot of my patients would call me and say, why is my sugar high, Susan? I didn't eat anything with carbohydrate. I said, well, tell me exactly what you ate. Well, I had made a smoothie. I didn't even put any fruit in. I put my protein powder. I'm like, well, which protein powder are you using? Protein powder with stevia, with Splenda, with azulfatine potassium. So they're actually seeing it, that the spike, when they thought it was free. So think about all those fake sweeteners that you're using in your coffee, um, diet soda, uh, creamers, I mean, it's, it's infiltrated in our food supply, right? And so you have to look closely at the integrity of what you're taking in because it may be affecting you in ways you have no idea. Hmm? Track how many carbs you eat in a meal. It will surprise you. A little cup of brown, healthy, rice is 45 carbs. That's three slices of bread. That frappuccino, coffee, mocha drink with whipped cream on top could be 60 or 80 carbs, four to six slices of bread. We were not designed at this age to handle that amount of carbs and sugars. So how do we gradually increase time between meals so that we're at least a minimum of four hours? Otherwise, we're fasting and we're watching the amount of carbs we're taking in. Okay? And I'll talk about this more tomorrow, exercise, moving more after meals. Right? You know, you don't have to be a gym rat. You know, you don't have to kill it at the gym every day. The research shows if you move, especially after a meal, even if you walked for five minutes after a meal, it actually lowers insulin resistance at the cellular level by 30%. Okay? So that little five-minute walk could be huge. So there's two receptors that help lower insulin resistance. One is called insulin, which I've talked about all morning. The other one is called GLUT4. You may have heard me talk about that last time. Insulin opens the cell from the outside. GLUT4 opens the cell from the inside. So the more you move, the more you use both these receptors, which, lo which lower insulin resistance because the food gets in the cells and the pancreas doesn't have to work so hard. It's all about resting what we call the beta cells of the pancreas. The beta cells are the cells that produce the insulin. 
And if you go to any medical conference, that's what they'll tell you. Rest the beta cells. So how do you rest the beta cells? Don't snack. Go at least four hours between meals. Lower your carbs and sugars. Right? Have that 10-hour window that you're eating in. And then how do you balance the rest of your day? Okay? So we are coming to the close, and I do want to get you to luncheon time. So <laughs> a... So what, what I plan to do tomorrow, okay, what I plan to do tomorrow is I'm going to finish where I ended up here, where you will get the whole picture. I promise to address all these issues, so don't worry, I will tend to those, and I will try to address some of the other issues, and if you think of something overnight that you, is applicable to this, I promise to address that as well. Now, what I would like to say is, because last time I ran out of books, so I brought books, and I have four books, and all the proceeds go to Mount Hermon. So um, if you want to buy one of the books today, I hope, hopefully we brought enough, we won't run out like we did last year. I have a latex book for health, that's the one with the basket. That's a little bit of everything, right? There's family-friendly recipes, easy recipes if you hate to cook. But it's, I call it, it's my child, but I call it a latex book for health. So we have that. We have a healthy baby book. If you have daughters or granddaughters with, that are pregnant or have gestational diabetes, I have a healthy cookie book. Um, I had patients uh, bombard me for years. What's a healthy treat, right? And so this was my solution to that. If you buy a recipe for life, I'm going to throw in a cookie book. Um, and then my latest book, uh, 101 Ways to Control Diabetes, uh, it's really, I should have named it 101 Ways to Control Insulin Resistance, but nobody knows what insulin resistance is. So, but it's a lot of little tips that you can pick and choose from for how do you control your insulin levels in your body so that you control inflammation and uh, lower your incidence of all disease states, okay? So thank you for your wonderful attention today, and uh, I hope to see you tomorrow.